You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 22. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. Find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Today I'm bringing you more fiction, fresh off my writing desk and served up for your listening pleasure. So let's get right to it. Today I'm proud to bring you the final installment in my short Metamore City novel, The Three Graces. If you haven't listened to parts one through six, stop! Don't listen to the episode yet! Don't even listen to this story recap. Go back to episode 16 and start there, because there are spoilers ahead. In our last episode, Natalie Grace was being held for ransom by a group of mercenaries in a factory on street level. The mercs had been hired by a member of Malcolm Ardvalis' crime syndicate, ostensibly without Malcolm's prior knowledge or consent. Malcolm claimed to find such tactics rude, so he passed information to Natalie's mother, Amelie, on how she could enter the factory undetected. But Amelie had recently been turned into a vampire by Malcolm's rival, Priestess Allura, and she was not about to let the mercenaries' attack on her family go unanswered. After infiltrating the factory and locating Natalie, Amelie stalked down the leader of the mercenaries and killed him, taking the remote detonator for the plastic explosives that sat under Natalie. Amelie took out several other members of the mercenary crew as well, including the man who held the keys to her daughter's chains. Convinced that a monster had gotten into the factory through the commuter tunnels, the man was trying desperately to get Natalie to safety when Amelie fell on him and tore out his throat. Overcome by the vampire bloodlust, Amelie savaged the man's body right in front of her terrified daughter, eviscerating him and even tearing his head off. Eventually, Amelie's conscious mind reasserted itself over her instincts, and when she saw what she had done, she vomited and fell to her knees, repeating over and over again, What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? The Three Graces, a novel of Metamore City, by Chris Lester. Part 7. Twenty-one. Amelie. I very nearly went mad in that lonesome factory between a headless corpse on one side and my terrified, weeping daughter on the other. I would like to say that I was not myself when I killed and eviscerated that man, but that would be a lie. The truth is far worse. I hated him, hated them all for taking my daughter, making her a pawn in the schemes of others, the beast within me had its own colourful ideas for what to do with them, and happily I surrendered control of my actions to its instincts. There are those who think that the beast is an alien force, a demonic thing that lives inside us and compels us to kill. It is not. The beast is me, set loose without the restraints of conscience and armed with the predator's skill set. When I came to myself... When my human restraints were in place once more, I realized that I could remember everything the beast had done. 
and I knew the rage and hatred that drove it, were my own. Do you know what it is like to discover that you are a monster? I do not mean the vampire's overtly supernatural traits. I had known more or less what to expect on that score. But that night I found a darkness inside myself that I had not known was there. A willingness to cross lines that society tells us we must never cross. And I had just armed that monster inside me with superhuman strength, immortality, and an inhuman hunger that stripped it of all fetters. I was beyond terrified. The door at the far end of the factory opened, and I heard someone step inside. For a moment I was afraid that the kidnappers were coming back with more powerful weapons, but this man seemed to be alone. I looked up, felt my vampiric low-light vision come back to me, and saw a man in a business suit walking toward me. He appeared to be in his early fifties, with handsome features and hair lightly touched with grey, and he carried an aura of personal power that was greater than anything I had ever seen, greater even than Priestess Allura. Even Natalie could sense it. She fell silent as he approached, huddled into herself, stared at him as a mouse stares at a predator. He moved at an unhurried pace, casually inspecting our surroundings. When he came to me and the headless kidnapper, he clucked his tongue in disapproval. You see, just as I said, crude, barbaric business. There's no place for this in my city. He looked at me, studying me closely with pale grey-green eyes. Hello, Mrs. Grace. I see you are once more in possession of your wits. Malcolm Advalos, I said and bowed my head in deference. I could hardly have done otherwise. The power that rolled off him demanded respect. I thought you said you couldn't act directly in this. Oh, not in any traceable way, no. But then no one saw me here but you and your daughter, and I think you both have ample reasons to keep your silence. He gestured down at the corpse I had made. I felt like I would be sick again. Natalie whimpered once, but said nothing. "'I don't know what to do,' I said softly. "'If the Lightbringers investigate, they will know I lost control. "'They will know that I am not safe for civilized life.' "'Really, Mrs. Grace,' Malcolm chided. "'You are being a bit dramatic, don't you think?' "'Yes, you let your instincts get the best of you, "'but you are only a fledgling.' and even a human may lose control if her child is threatened. You are far from feral, and situations like this can be easily remedied. These were bad men who came to a bad end. The nature of that end can be altered without attracting undue suspicion from law enforcement. I looked up at him. You would clean this up for me, sir? He nodded once, a slow inclination of his head. That can be arranged. In return, I may ask you for a favor at a future date. Nothing that would endanger your family, of course. I frowned. I won't betray my mistress, either. Malcolm's face fell. You don't know. Of course not. How could you? You were on your way here. A stab of fear struck my heart. What's happened? There was a gas explosion at the church not two hours ago. The fire was most intense. Behind me, Natalie gasped. 
Malcolm shook his head. My men tried to tell her that the place needed more serious renovations. The gas lines from that period were never reliable. Unfortunately, Allura thought I was trying to cheat her. I didn't know whether to believe that or not, and for the moment I didn't care. Mistress Allura? Nathan? Your husband is alive, Malcolm said quickly. My men saw him with his butler. Neither appeared to be injured. He hesitated. The priestess, however, she refused to abandon those trapped inside. I am told she rescued many of them before a second explosion took her life. I bowed my head, tears filling my vision once more. My feelings were deeply conflicted, relieved that Nathan had survived, but anguished at the loss of my mistress. I felt as if a hole had been opened in my heart. What will I do without her? I whispered. She was teaching me to adapt to the change, to control the beast. Malcolm put up a hand in a calming gesture. You will not be abandoned, Mrs. Grace. I can promise you that. I will speak to Queen Talia personally on your behalf. She will choose for you a suitable mentor. He approached the stack of pallets where Natalie was chained. She shrank back from him, reflexively, but there was nowhere for her to go, and he seemed to pay her little attention. He crouched down, examining the plastic explosives in their attached circuitry. Were you able to obtain the trigger? Wordlessly, I held it out to him. The device was little more than a button and a radio transmitter, but I had no doubt it could have shattered my world if I had given the kidnapper's leader a chance to use it. Malcolm took the trigger and inspected it, nodding to himself. Then he reached under the platform, did something to the wires, and pulled out the detonator. He put both in the inside pocket of his jacket, then nodded toward the headless corpse. He will have the keys to your daughter's chains, I believe. He did, Natalie said, her voice very quiet. They were in his hand when you fell on him. I looked around for a moment but didn't see the keys. Without thinking about it, I shifted back into my theriomorph shape and clicked, looking for the distinctive echoes that a ring of keys would make. I found them under the edge of the assembly line, out of direct line of sight, but the echoes off the assembly line's support structure revealed them. I retrieved the keyring without any fumbling, and then headed for Natalie. That is quite a useful talent, Malcolm remarked. You will be most formidable when your powers are fully trained. I didn't want to think about power, or about training, or about anything else the future might hold. All that mattered now was protecting my family, from men like Malcolm, and perhaps from myself as well. I removed the magic inhibitor collar from Natalie's neck, and before I could remove the chains, she shifted into full bat form and fled, flapping toward the open exit. Natalie! I cried, terrified that something else would happen to her. As a bat, she was so small, so fragile, and it was much too cold. Malcolm moved faster than I would have thought possible. In a flash, he had interposed himself between Natalie and the door, reached out and caught her delicately in his cupped hands. Natalie squeaked and bit, but he held her steady before his face, locking eyes with her. Miss Grace, you need to calm yourself. His tone was low, but brooked no argument. Instantly, Natalie grew quiet, staring back at him. Sleep now, Malcolm said. 
We will bring you home safely, I promise you. Sleep. Natalie went limp in his hands, her little chest heaving in a steady rhythm. Malcolm gently tucked her into the pocket with his handkerchief. My baby, I whispered. My poor baby. She will be all right, Malcolm said, putting a hand on my shoulder. I cringed reflexively, but there was no menace in his touch, only comfort. We will take her to her father. You cannot be her comfort tonight, not with the things that she has seen. I wiped at my eyes, hating myself and everything I had become. Why had I agreed to this? Elora had hoped to use me as an ally against Malcolm, but now Malcolm was all that stood between me and a Lightbringer's blade. I had sacrificed more than I could have imagined, and now the ones I loved most were in greater danger than ever. I cannot go home with them, I said, not until I have the beast under control. That is wise, Malcolm agreed. In any case, the Church of Eternal Brotherhood needs you. You were Allura's protege. They will look to you to lead them as they rebuild. I... I don't know if I can. You can. And if ever you need my help, you have only to ask. I knew such an offer was dangerous. Even then I knew it. But I also knew I had little choice. So I did the only thing I could do. For myself, for my church, and for my family. Thank you, I said. 22. Nathan Amelie found me in the lobby of an apartment complex across from the church, where the landlord had allowed us to shelter while the police took statements and the paramedics tended to the injured. She arrived in a long black skimmer with tinted windows, accompanied by a man I thought I recognized but couldn't quite place. She threw herself into my arms, sobbing, and it took me a moment to realize that she was covered in blood. I could tell with my theriomorph senses that it wasn't hers— and there were other, worse things mixed in with it. I held her close anyway. What happened? I asked. In answer, the man with her took a tiny vampire bat out of his pocket. There was no mistaking Natalie. I broke the embrace with my wife, took my daughter in my hands, and nuzzled her to my cheek, feeling her breath on my fur. She was alive, asleep but unharmed. I looked down at Amelie. The kidnappers? I asked. They won't be troubling anyone any longer, the man said. You have my sincere regrets for the fact that you and your family were caught up in this matter, Mr. Grace. His eyes flickered briefly down the hall, toward a police officer who was taking a statement from one of the other survivors. A detailed description of the night's events would be better suited to a more private locale. I suggest that you meet us tomorrow evening at my business office. He produced a card from one of his pockets, and since my hands were full, he tucked it into my own breast pocket. Us? I asked, confused. Amelie kissed me once, fiercely, then stepped back to the man's side. I can't stay at the Belfry, my love. What? Amelie, why? She put a hand to my mouth, but it was the tears in her eyes that shut me up. I'll explain tomorrow, I promise. But for now, please trust me. This is safer for everyone. And Natalie... 
Natalie needs her father tonight. She stroked a finger over our girl's tiny head. Be strong for her, love. Then Amelie's eyes changed. It was only for a second, there and gone again. But I saw them turn a shining yellow-green, then back to their usual black again. Those weren't a bat's eyes. They didn't belong on anything living. Elora had told me the truth. Amelie was turned. She was one of them now. Good night, Nathan, she whispered. I'll see you tomorrow. The man nodded to me, Mr. Grace. Then he put his arm around my wife and escorted her back to the waiting skimmer. Harrison appeared at my side as they pulled away from the curb. May I take Miss Grace from you, sir? he asked. I held my daughter close to my chest. Not a chance. Harrison bowed briefly. I understand, sir. I gestured at the spot where the skimmer had left. Did you see all of that? Yes, sir. Who was that man with my wife? Harrison hesitated, then leaned in close to my ear. That is Malcolm Advalos, sir. I turned to look him in the eye, half convinced he was joking. He wasn't. What's the third richest guy in the Empire doing with my wife? Harrison's eyes were as serious as the grave. With any luck, sir, he will be teaching her to control her new nature. She no longer has Mistress Allura to protect her. Another stab of pain jabbed into me alongside the first. So you're saying he's a... Yes, sir, Harrison said, quickly and quietly. But it is indiscreet to mention it in public. I was floored. A lot of things in the metamore business world suddenly made a lot more sense. Can we trust him? Harrison seemed to weigh the question carefully. You can trust him to be true to his nature, sir. You can trust him to keep his word if he gives it. You can trust him to reward excellence and to punish incompetence or betrayal. He paused. And you can trust him to guard jealously the things he considers his own. I thought about all that. Then I looked down at my daughter, safe and sound in my hands. Well, I said, I guess I've had worse bosses than that. 23. Natalie I woke up in Mom and Dad's bedroom. Dad had me on his chest, tucked under the covers with him. I felt warm and safe. Mom was nowhere around, and at that moment, that made me feel even safer. After a while, I crawled off his chest, shifted back to theriamorph form, and nestled up next to him, my head on his chest. He wrapped his arm around me and held me without waking up. I don't know when exactly I started crying, Everything that had happened, it was just too much. My life was in pieces, and I know every teenager feels that way at least three or four times a year, but in my case it was actually true. Powerless doesn't begin to cover it. My crying must have woken Dad, because he held me tighter and wrapped his other arm around me. He put his face down close to mine and nuzzled the top of my head. We'll be all right, kid.
he said. We'll be all right. I sniffed and wiped my eyes on his shirt. Are you sure about that, Dad? He pulled back a little and looked at me. Tell me what happened, Natalie. Please. I need to know. So I told him. I told him about the kidnappers, and about Mom being a vampire, and about her going crazy and ripping suit guy's head off. And that other guy who showed up, the one who put me to sleep. I told Dad about that, too, though I didn't understand who he was or why he was important. I just knew he was scary powerful, and that Mom seemed to treat him the same way she treated Priestess Allura. Then Dad told me about Allura and the fire, and how she had died in an explosion while trying to save everybody. He was really sad about that, and so was I. But over the next few days, I started to feel this weird sort of relief about it, too. I don't really know how to describe it, except that it felt like I was getting back a part of myself that had gone missing. Mom never came back to live with us. She moved into Priestess Allura's apartment at Valos Tower, because that was where the other vampires in the city mostly lived, and they would keep an eye on her and help her control her powers. She still lives there now. I see her every week at church service, and sometimes we go and visit her for dinner, or we go with her to the theater or something. Mostly, though, it's Dad and Harrison and me. I miss her a lot. Mr. Ardvalos paid for the church to be rebuilt, and Mom leads the congregation now, but the main church office sent a senior priest to help her and be her teacher and stuff. I'm pretty sure he's another vampire, but nobody talks about it. His name is Master Gyron, and I don't know much about him apart from that. He kind of gives me the creeps, but I guess that's just the vampire thing. He's always been kind to me, though he doesn't say much. What's that? Sure, ma'am. What's your question? I... No. I guess I don't really believe in the Church of Eternal Brotherhood anymore. But I am still religious. I told you how I got into studying dreams, right? Well, when you study dreams, that means studying Lady Nocturna, too. And, I don't know, I guess something clicked for me. I went to talk to one of her dreamwalkers... Asked a bunch of questions, went home, thought about it, then went back and told them I wanted to learn how to be one. They told me the first thing was to get my degree in aniromancy and then pass my Adepta Exempta exams, so that's what I've been working on. Dad had an altar built for me in the belfry, so I can pray and do my rituals and stuff. It's really private and personal, not like the organized services at the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. The Dreamwalkers aren't super organized, but it feels important to me. It feels real. And after everything that's happened to us, I needed something real. Something true. Can I ask you something now, ma'am? What are you going to do to my mom? 24. Apologue. The lady in the white morning dress rose from her seat, and one of the guards flanking her turned to open the door to the little room. The lady's features were obscured behind the gauze of her funeral veil, but she seemed to show an encouraging smile. That depends on what your mother chooses to do, she said. 
Thank you for your honesty, Natalie. It was very helpful. Sure. Natalie looked up at the lady, studying the intricate pattern of silver spider webs that shimmered against the white of her dress. Will you take me back to my dad now? Soon, the lady promised. He's in the room next door. I just need to have one more word with your mother first. Are you hungry? The Batgirl briefly touched her stomach, then nodded. I'll have some food brought to you both. The lady inclined her head. It was a pleasure to meet you, Natalie. I hope we will meet again. Thanks. Natalie rose from her own chair and curtsied a little awkwardly. And I'm sorry for your loss, ma'am. She gestured at the lady's mourning garb. The lady looked down at herself, then back up at Natalie. Thank you, child. She left the room, and her guards followed her, shutting and locking the door behind her. She descended three flights of stairs, passing more of her guards in attendance. One of them took the order for food and ran off to inform the kitchens. The lady continued her descent, out of the well-furnished living quarters and down the cool, plain stone passage that led to the basement. After passing a security checkpoint, with steel doors and scanners and guards armed with machine guns, the lady entered the secure ward. She stopped at the third cell from the left, which opened to her palm and retinal scans. Amelie Grace lay on a thin mattress on the steel cot, her hands folded over her stomach and her eyes closed. The steel manacles on her arms and feet were still securely bolted to their anchors on the walls and floor. She did not move as the lady entered, but the lady saw her nostrils twitch and heard the indrawn breath as Amelie took in her scent. The lady sat in the chair nearest the door, which her guards closed behind her. The guards themselves remained outside, leaving the two women alone in the cell. After a long moment, Amelie spoke. So, you're back again. I am, the lady agreed. She crossed her legs and folded her hands in her lap. Your husband and daughter both support your story. They weren't clear on all the details, of course, but the essentials all line up. It is obvious that you were an innocent bystander who was caught up in the syndicate's games. Amelie sat up, swinging her legs over the side of the cot. She regarded the lady with cool reserve. I trust you are convinced, then, that I am no threat? Oh, on the contrary, the lady said. I think you're a very formidable threat indeed. Priestess Allura's bloodline was powerful, and you seem to have inherited that power to a great degree. A flash of teeth appeared behind the veil. The question is, who are you a threat to? Amelie smiled thinly, conceding the point with a nod of her head. Malcolm was very kind to me and my family. He helped us when we needed it most. But you needed that help because of actions he and his subordinates had taken, the lady countered. His people took your daughter. They killed your mistress. Amelie looked at her sharply. Do you have proof that he was behind that? Proof? No. But I know how he operates. You were not the first to fall victim to his manipulations, Mrs. Grace. Not by a long shot. Amelie crossed her arms. That may be, but there are many who would say you're no better, my lady. She gestured at the design on the other woman's dress. 
and those who take the spider as their mascot are hardly advertising a path of unvarnished honesty. The lady chuckled, a rich and darkly amused sound. Touché, my dear. It's true, I have had to weave a great many webs these past few years, but I have no desire to catch you in them. Amelie raised her arms, rattling the chains that held her. She raised her eyebrows in an ironic look. The lady sighed. Yes, I suppose you've earned that much trust. She produced a key from a hidden pocket, crossed to the cot, and removed the manacles from Amelie's arms and legs. Amelie rubbed at her wrists as the lady returned to her seat. Your husband and daughter love you dearly, she said. As I am now convinced, you love them. The question now is how you can best show that love for them. She gestured at Amelie. You are a rare creature, Mrs. Grace. A powerful vampire who is unbound to a master. That gives you flexibility and freedom that few others in this city possess. You may fear Malcolm, but you are not beholden to him. True, Amelie said but you have yet to give me any compelling reason to cross him. Why should I believe the White Widow will be any better for me and my family than Malcolm Advalos? Ah. At this, the lady drew back her veil, revealing her face to Amelie. She smiled, her white teeth gleaming against pale skin. The beautiful, elegant features stood in stark contrast to the many scars that covered her neck and shoulders. Now that, Mrs. Grace, is something I would love to talk about. Malcolm owes you, me, and a million others a great many debts. Her smile took on a sharp, predatory edge. Let me tell you how I intend to collect. Yeah.
And that's the end of our story. I hope you enjoyed The Three Graces. To learn more about the White Widow and the threat she poses to Malcolm Ardvalos, check out my novel Things Unseen. It's on sale now through Amazon and Smashwords. The links will be in the show notes. I love bringing you new stories on this show, but this is only the final performance. Backstage is where the real work happens. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,685 words this week, over the course of 7.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 646 words per hour. As of Thursday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 143 days without breaking my chain. I'm continuing to make good progress on my new Metamore City story, The Way is in the Heart. I'm not sure yet whether this is going to be a novella or another short novel, along the lines of The Three Graces. I'm betting on the latter, though. If you're a subscriber to my Patreon campaign at the $3 a month level or higher, you received a sneak peek at this story in your Patreon feed this week. Go ahead and check it out at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. Shai Revzen writes, Hi Chris, it's been over three years that I've been listening to the Metamore City podcast. I caught Welcome to the City when it came out, and hung my head in grief when you stopped podcasting for a while. That you have started writing and podcasting again with such energy, grace, and talent has been tremendously enjoyable news. While your full cast work was a beautiful technical achievement, your voice is more than up to the task of rendering your stories amazingly well. The rate with which you are creating and sharing new content is much more valuable than the marginal value of the fancy full cast productions of the past. Thank you, Shy. It took me a long time to realize that. Sometimes I go back to my old feedback shows and interviews, and I wince at how obsessed I was with the bells and whistles of full-cast audio. Sure, it's pretty. And I am super grateful to all of my voice actors for the amazing performances they turned in. But is it worth going to that kind of effort when it means I don't have time to write new stories? Unfortunately, no. I owe this reality check to a few people, but none more so than Abby Hilton, who pushed me repeatedly about it over the years. Incidentally, right now I'm beta-reading The Scarlet Albatross, Abby's latest novel, and it is awesome. All you Panamandora fans are in for a real treat when this comes out. Shy continues, I am a huge fan of the world-building genres in sci-fi and fantasy, an appreciation that crystallized when I read Tolkien's masterful essay on fairy stories well over 25 years ago. Shy gives a link here, which I'll include in the show notes. Your work is of the highest class in this domain. It is delightful. To Walk in Shadow gave beautiful insight into the complexity of Baal, and I cried a river when Allura was, presumably, destroyed. Keep telling us the tales of these wonderfully complex creatures. Keep challenging the simplistic notions of good and evil our culture is steeped with. Show us again where passion and nobility truly lie. Thank you very much, Shai. I do love telling stories about morally complex characters, as I said in last week's episode. And for anyone who hasn't read On Fairy Stories, I think it should be required reading for any specfic author. It's Tolkien being an academic, so the prose is a little dry— but there's some great stuff in there for storytellers of all stripes. 
Hi, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa with feedback for part six of the three graces. I was a little bit surprised to hear that this was the next to last section, but then thinking it over, it kind of makes sense given how intense and how big this scene was here. We have a bit of a uh, downhill after that, I'm guessing. Uh, unless you have something even more intense than Amelie going berserk and killing and devouring and making a gigantic, bloody, gut-filled mess of uh, one of the captors. Unless you have something more intense than that, I have a feeling we are uh, going on the, um, shoot, I forget that Latin word or whatever it is, or maybe it's French. I don't forget it, I just don't know how to pronounce it, so you can fill it in. That would be the denouement. And yes, it is French. And yeah, I think Amelie's gore-splattered rescue mission would have been a hard one to top in terms of intensity. Anyway, that last bit of the scene, your imagery there was very intense and very graphic. I personally thought that that was appropriate. I wonder if anyone would consider it gratuitous. I don't really know what is considered gratuitous in terms of violence in fiction. I'm sure there's a wide range of opinions, but personally, I thought that the grossness here was um, well done. And I really feel for Natalie because that has to have been such a traumatizing experience for her. And, you know, I feel for Amelie, too, because when she came back to herself, she's just like in shock of what she's done. I thought it was interesting how, even though Natalie hadn't seen her mom behaving in certain ways before, like the way she's moving and stuff, that she didn't immediately know that something was off. Figuring the, of course, you know, it's because you, you know, you took her baby. And just poor Natalie realizing that it's not just that. This was one of those parts where I had to think really carefully about the difference between character knowledge and reader knowledge. We all have seen the stories with Morgan, we've seen Making the Cut, so we have a good understanding of a lot of what vampires can do and what makes them different from mortals. Natalie didn't have that knowledge. She just heard a lot of rumors and urban legends that were all maybe 10 or 20% true. I think it's also likely that Natalie watched action movies and TV shows where apparently ordinary mortals did amazing things when they were under pressure. As a teenager, and a fairly young one, she doesn't necessarily understand how much of that is dramatic license, and how much of it is actually feasible. And let's not forget that Natalie had seen her mom use Allura's blood magic before, so she really has no idea what her mom is capable of. The idea of her becoming an action hero just isn't all that far-fetched for Natalie. As I considered all of that, I realized it just wasn't likely that Natalie would realize something was wrong with her mother until she saw the beast up close. Anyway, so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what happens next, and of course the identity of whoever they are talking to. I mean, besides the Lightbringers, I don't know who it would be, but I have a tendency to forget some of the moving pieces just because this is such a complex universe. So I'm looking forward to finding out what's going on, who was behind this, and who is behind the questioning. So... I look forward to the new episode, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Sarah. Now that you've listened to this episode, of course, you at least have a name for the woman behind the Grace's interrogation, even if her identity may not be clear. Expect to see a lot more from the White Widow and her organization in coming novels, as the war for the street of Metamore City heats up. Hey, Chris. 
It's Adam Schmidt. I thought I'd grace you with my voice today since I'm kind of tired today. Just finished part six of the Three Graces, and I gotta say, I am thoroughly impressed and slightly terrified. Perfect for Halloween. It's really interesting to see just how bestial you make your vampires, and I actually applaud you for that because you don't see that a lot very often. And it's kind of interesting to see how that instinct really blends with how far a mother would go to protect her child versus just how inexperienced Amelie is with her powers and how it's going to be affected with the death of uh, Laura, which, by the way, I nearly teared up during that uh, heartfelt little scene where basically they're talking about her death and all that. And also about the clever wording in my last email, cheeky, very cheeky. All right, I will leave you on that. Excellent part. I am thoroughly excited to hear how this ends, and I will definitely be calling in the future. Thanks, Adam. When I think about the vampires in Metamore, I always go back to their origin story. They were the thing that Lilith created to hunt elves and humans, to bring them back into the food web of predator and prey. So vampires had to be smart enough to survive in the civilized world the mortals had created— but still ferocious enough to do their job. It's a delicate balancing act, and one that they get better at threading as they gain experience. Of course, there are vamps who fall off the wagon, so to speak. They can't handle the psychic strain caused by the sharing, and they go feral in order to protect themselves from it. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have vampires like Malcolm, who are extremely self-disciplined and controlled, so that their predatory urges get sublimated into things like the drive to possess and dominate other sentient beings. We'll see vampires all over that continuum in Metamore City, and they don't necessarily stay at one point on the continuum when their circumstances change. That makes it especially fun for me, because it means that I can pull in more monstrous or more human vampires as the situation demands it. Here, with her baby kidnapped and having almost no experience in controlling her urges, there was no question that Amelie was going off the deep end. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my handle on Twitter is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. That's all for this week. Next week, I'll be bringing you another interview episode. This time, I'm talking to Keith R.A. DeCanado about media tie-in novels and work for hire. It was a fun talk. You won't want to miss it. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. It was made available for use through Mevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. For more of their music, please visit HungryLucy.com. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, 
please visit creativecommons.org. 